Lord willing, finish Job chapter 2 tonight and start on Job chapter 3. I'm going to move this way a little bit. All right, so in chapter, we've seen a couple of things. We've, we've take, taken a look at the chapter itself, the verses, and so on. Tonight, we're going to start with the application, the lessons from chapter 2. We saw in chapter 2 that the, the, the heavenly court convened once again, much like it did in chapter 1. And then it, uh, uh, Satan came before God. And uh, God said, see, Satan, your hypothesis did not prove to be true. Job has not abandoned me uh, under suffering. Now, you took away his possessions, you took away his, his family, you took away his reputation, and he still is worshiping me, as chapter 2 ends with Job worshiping God. And then Satan says, no, if you let me actually hurt him, you, he's going to turn away from you, and God gives him permission. So, uh, so Satan doubles down in the effort to destroy Job with more suffering. We saw that uh, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he was covered with boils, uh, a very disgusting sort of thing. He was using just pieces of uh, broken uh, pottery to scratch, to, to itch you know, himself. And Satan picked that because it's a very socially... Um, Yucky disease, right? Nobody wants to be around a guy covered in boils. So he's a boil. So he's alone, and he's suffering alone. And then we saw that uh, Satan did not even waste time, and he went again and inflicted more sufferings on on Job. And then the chapter ends with the introduction of the three amigos, you know, the guys that uh, we're going to spend a lot of time from chapter four to twenty-seven looking at. Till Elihu is introduced. So this is what happened last week. Now we're going to draw lessons from chapter 2, at least two lessons. And the first one is this. Suffering is hard. Suffering alone is harder. Suffering is hard, but suffering alone is even harder. Satan masterfully adds the ultimate element to suffering. And that is the aloneness that Job found himself in as he was suffering. Now, later in the book, Job speaks of his profound sense of loneliness and abandonment. He blames God for driving away all the people in his life. Look at chapter 19 for a second, if you could. Verses 13 and 14 of Job chapter 19. These are the words of Job. And he says, he has, talking about God, he has removed my brothers far from me and my acquaintances are, are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. That's the state of mind that Job is in. Whether this is accurate or not, that's, what, that's where Job is. And he's very lonely in his suffering. It's interesting how Job is just like us. He has highs and lows in the space of the same chapter, because this is the great resurrection chapter as well, where he declares his faith in the Lord that in his flesh he will see the Lord at one, at one day because the Redeemer lives, and yet he also blames God for his loneliness. Job's sense of abandonment was not only with regard to human relations, no, his sense of being 
uh, he's, he's also had this sense of being utterly forsaken by God himself. So even God has left me. And that's where we find Job. And my question for you is this. Have you ever felt like that, that, that ever felt that way? Where you feel like everybody has abandoned you and even God has abandoned you. Now, in the midst of a trial, have you ever felt like you had no friends and that God had forgotten and forsaken you? And my guess is that some of us are well acquainted with this struggle and have shared Job's experience at some level. In a number like this, some of us have felt what Job is feeling here in chapter 2. And perhaps some of you are there right now, feeling alone, forgotten, and abandoned. While, and, and this is important, because in the middle of suffering, a lot of times we try to retract, to retrieve ourselves. Retrieve? Retreat. Retreat ourselves away from people. We, we, we put ourselves in the corner. We don't want to be around the people. And while the church cannot end human suffering, it can endeavor to ensure that the people of God don't have to suffer alone. Even though we might try to do that, that's not what we need to do. The church is here to suffer with each other. Now, the story of Job should challenge us regarding our response to those who are suffering in our congregation. While we'll see that the wisdom of Job's friend wasn't that, wasn't that great, that once they opened their mouths, they really stuck their foot into their mouths, as God tells them later in the book, their initial reaction to suffering was spot on. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. They did exactly what Job needed at the time. They were present with him. Now, often we don't know what to say to someone who is suffering. Uh, you go, as a pastor, you go visit somebody who's dying and the family's there, and you just, you just don't know what to say. I mean, uh, there's only so many things that uh, you, you can say. And often, because we feel like we have to say something, we say things that are foolish or unhelpful to the people who are suffering because we don't know what to say. And what the, the friends, the, the, the greatest thing that the friends of Job teach us in chapter 2 is that it's okay not to say anything. And I think that sometimes we stay away from people who are suffering because we exactly that. We don't know what to say. And, and God is telling us here, it's okay to just be with them and not say anything. The, Pro, uh, the book of Proverbs, can't remember exactly where it says, but my paraphrase is this, everybody sounds super intelligent until they open their mouths, right? So, and you can apply that to counseling. You, you, you sound like the greatest counselor. You, everybody is the greatest counselor until some open uh, their mouths. And sometimes we just feel like we have to say something. And many people, when they speak to a suffering person, they tend to share a story about another person they know that had a similar experience. You know, the person says, I'm suffering with this. And all of a sudden, the conversation turns either to a a, a similar experience that they know about. You know, my brothers, uh, wives, cousins, neighbors, sister-in-law went through something or... 
we shift the conversation and tell them something about us that we may, you know, somebody says, oh, uh, you know, I just found out my, my spouse is Alzheimer's or is dying or something like that. And then we go and talk to them and we say, oh, yeah, well, that reminds me of the day I had an ingrown toenail. And we we'll go on to tell them about my, our ingrown toenail. More often than not, this is not helpful and even hurtful. And if we don't know what to say, perhaps the best approach is to be like Job's friends. Just don't say anything. Just make sure that the person suffering is not alone. Just make sure that the person suffering is not alone. Um, Christopher or Robert Alden says this about good counselors. He says, good counselors know that sometimes the best thing they can do is simply listen. Just the presence of a sympathetic person can provide comfort altogether apart from any spoken words. This probably was the finest demonstration of love these three could have shown. If they had simply returned home without saying anything, their reputations would be much different. <laughs> They'll be known for, for having been really good friends to Job instead of the butt of many jokes uh, when it comes to friends in the Bible. And on top of that, we have this great book that contains the greatest of all hymnals, the Psalter, that gives voice to a lot of things that we may not know how to say. And just sitting with somebody who's suffering and say, look, I, I'm just going to read a psalm to you. And I like this psalm, and I'm going to read it to you. That can be sufficient comfort there. So that's lesson number one. Suffering is hard. Suffering alone is harder. And no one in the church needs to suffer alone. And we should not leave anyone in the church, let anyone in the church suffer Alone. Remember uh, what Romans uh, tells us that we are to let love be without hypocrisy. Now, we have to let love be without a mask of pretending. And then Paul goes on to, discuss, to describe what that love is. And one of the things he says that love rejoices with those that are rejoicing, but also does what? Weeps with those that are weeping. So even having a good cry with somebody who is suffering can be a comfort to them. Lesson number two from... Job chapter 2, comfort is ultimately found in the one who suffered alone. And that's something we have to keep in mind, Church of Jesus Christ, that we have one who suffered alone so that, we, so that he could be with us when we suffered. Now, Job's isolation, loneliness, and sense of abandonment in the midst of suffering points us to the work of Jesus Christ. Remember what was one of his seven sayings from the cross, the most... Uh, Jarring saying, the most uh, devastating saying from the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a cry of abandonment. Our Lord, his disciples left. He was suffering alone. Uh, the women could come cross to the cross. to the cross. He was suffering alone so that we do not have to, do not have to suffer alone. Christopher Ashe is a British commentator on the book of Job. Very accessible. If you ever come across his commentary, commentary he says... Job is, in his awesome loneliness, foreshadows another believer, an even greater man who endures an even deeper suffering. This believer, too, was with the, his dearest friends in the garden outside Jerusalem. He told them to sit and wait while he prayed. He took with his, him his three closest friends and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. He went on a little further, fell on the ground, and prayed with loud cries and tears. But when he came back, he found them sleeping. Could you not watch? One hour, he asked sadly. The next day he suffered alone, stripped of his clothes, robbed of his friends, with even his mother having to keep her distance from the cross. He said to his friends that although they would leave him alone, he was not alone, for the Father is with me. But in the deepest intensity of his suffering, he cried out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the old hymn puts it, he bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. There is a deep sense in which the lonely sufferings of Jesus Christ mean that no believer today called to enter Job's loneliness in its full depth. Not only Christians should not suffer alone because of the church of Jesus Christ, Christians don't suffer alone because their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you, can you think of a passage in the Bible that declares that, that we don't have to suffer alone, that our Lord is with us? Never leave or forsake you, yes? So you think of that's in Hebrews chapter 13 in the New Testament. What else? Remember the great encouragement to prayer in Hebrews chapter 4? And one of the reasons why we can pray with boldness is because we have a sympathetic high priest, one who is with us, who suffered like we do, yet without sinning. In Hebrews chapter 2 says he became the perfect Savior for us because he suffered even to death, so that we do not, do not have to fear death. So Job's suffering and sense of abandonment, and all human suffering and sense of abandonment, are answered by the work of Jesus on the cross. Now Jesus is not distanced from these human experiences. Rather, he experienced them really and actually. Sometimes I think we think of Jesus as a, I don't know, a concept, uh, or even as a movie, not as a real person who really lived and who really suffered the same way that we do, so that he could have the experiential understanding of our suffering. The true comfort for, for those who suffer is found by looking to Jesus. And that sounds simple. And that sounds like something you say in Sunday school, but that's 100% true. This, this point is essential to enduring suffering and to helping people who are, who are suffering. We want some complex things. We want something complicated to, to, to tell people, something that is convoluted, so that's going to help them. But if you are suffering, look to the cross, look to Jesus. And if you're trying to help someone who is going through suffering... Remind them of Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus and say to them, look to the cross. That's simple. Every one of you who are in Jesus Christ can do that. You don't need a master's or a doctorate in counseling. You can point people who are suffering to the suffering Savior. And the comfort provided by Jesus for those who suffer is not merely that he suffered too. He suffered to and suffering. Remember what one of the great descriptions of eternal life in the book of Revelation is? What is it that's going to be absent in the eternal state, in forever with Jesus? No tears. There will be no tears there. He promises to right the wrongs of this world, and he has won a victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell. But 
the one who is coming back for us is with us now. It's not just in the future, but he's with us now. Sorry, I've got behind on my... Oh, there. <laughs> there. He's, the, one of the last things he told his, his apostles was, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What was he saying to the apostles? I'm with you always. Always includes when? Right now. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. That, that's a promise. Never leave you, nor forsake you. So these are the two lessons from chapter 2 that I want us to get. Suffering is hard. Suffering alone is even harder. Nobody should suffer alone because the church is here. And then lesson 2, the, our suffering should point us to our Savior who suffered for us and suffer with us as we go through suffering. Any comments before we embark into chapter 3? All right, so let's then flip the page or not to chapter 3 and the why me cry of Job in chapter 3. I don't know if you've ever seen this scene. Send me news like that today of all days. I know, I know we are the chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? I think that's exactly how Job feels in chapter 3. If you read it, that's the feeling you get. In chapter 3, before we get into the content, before we look at Job's death wish in chapter 3, just as housekeeping, chapter 3 represents a change in the literary style. Chapters 1 and 2, you have historical narrative in prose. Chapter 3 now, the author changes to uh, poetry. And our translations often acknowledge that by changing the margins and the justification and alignment of the text in the Bible to, to signify that we're moving from prose to poetry. Does, does your Bible do that? Those that have Bibles open in front of you? Yeah. So there, the editors, the translators are trying to let us know that we're moving from prose to poetry, and that's how it's going to be all the way to chapter 42 in this, this book. And the first thing we see in, the, in this chapter is Job's death wish. Look at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day he, of his birth. The entire chapter is riddled with this theme of cursing the day he was born. Look at verse 6. As for that night, may darkness seize it, may it not rejoice among the days of the year, may it not come into the number of the months. That's the night in which he was born. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3, Job says, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? And then in verse 16, 
Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? Job says, I wish I were never born. That's, that's a big theme in chapter 3. Let me ask you this. Why does Job wish he had never been born? Because he doesn't want to be alive, okay. Why? Why doesn't he want to be alive? He's miserable, okay. What else? Grieving, okay. What else? Lost all hope, okay. You guys are too deep and in theologically. This would be more simple, more like the lines of what Steve said here. He, he wished he wasn't born so that he didn't have to have gone through what he did go through. Right? He wished he had not been born so that he, the, the things he experienced, the things his eyes saw, the things his heart felt would not have happened to him. And then Job goes beyond wishing he was never born. Now, if God won't grant him the erasure of his birth, he pleads for the ending of his life. Look at verses 4 and 5. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. The shadow of darkness or the shadow of death claim it. You know, it rings like Psalm 23, but with the exact opposite desire. And the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 23 says that the, the, the Lord leads us through the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death, into green pastures. Here he's saying, just let the shadow of death fall upon me. Just, just kill me. Just let me, just let me die. Now Job's expression of this yearning for darkness serves to remind us that such thoughts are not foreign to the hearts of the faithful. That even a Christian, when he or she is suffering, may have thoughts of ending his or her life. It is something that may even happen among us here tonight. And, and God does not grant Job's death wish. And Job laments over it that God did not grant his death wish. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures. You say, why does God give me life? Just so, so I can experience more misery? I just want to die. Just, I want my life to end right now. And Job is experiencing even greater pain and sense of loss besides possession, family, and health. He feels betrayed by God and abandoned by Him. Look at verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose ways is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Now, this is the opposite of the, the, this idea of hedging that we read in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 1, Satan says, God, you put a hedge around Job to protect him. Here, Job is using the same language. He said, no, God hedged me and he, he put me in a suffering, a cell of suffering. He locked me in by myself in solitary confinement and the walls of that cell and the floors of that cell and the ceiling of that cell is suffering. And I'm not lonely here. Even God has abandoned me in this, in this cell and I just want my life to end. 
And as we come to the end of the chapter, it is clear that he feels imprisoned in a cell of suffering, and he blames God for it. Now, three lessons from this chapter. Okay, so two from chapter two, three from chapter three. We're not going to have four and, no, 27 from chapter 27. It happens to be this way. The other way. There. Lesson one. It is not unfaithful to speak honestly to God about suffering. Who is Job speaking to in chapter 3? If you look at it, he's directing his speech to God, not to his three friends. He's speaking to God when he says all these things. There was no doubt in Job's mind that God allowed this suffering to his life. So Job directed his lament to God. Job, Job directed his crying to God. It is appropriate, brothers and sisters, to address our laments about our personal suffering to God because He is the ultimate ruler of the universe and the ruler of all that comes to pass. You know, go talk to the person in charge. That's exactly what we're doing when we bring our sufferings before God. The Christian understands that suffering is not a product of chance. So to direct our lament to God is to acknowledge Him as God. What Job is doing here is acknowledging that God is God. He's the author of all things. He is the ultimate cause. So he directs his lament to God. And we find lots of examples of this in the How Long Psalms. There are several psalms in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, that the cry of the, of the psalmist is, how long? Probably the most famous is 13, but we have 6 and 35 and 74 and 80 and 89 and 90 and 94. These are all how long Psalms. Remember what the question that the souls in heaven ask God in the book of Revelation? How long, Lord? Yes. Uh, Jesus himself brings his lament to the Father on the cross when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, the night at Gethsemane when he prays and just shares and pours the anguish of his soul before God, is similar to Job chapter 3. So Job reminds us that denying our pain or speaking in Christian platitudes about it is not what God calls us to do when we are experiencing suffering. The real danger in times of suffering is not that we might say something wrong to God in our crying out to Him. The real danger is that we can become angry with Him. Blame him and perhaps even avoid him entirely. That's where the real danger is. It's not in what, saying something wrong to God, but in just getting angry and blaming and avoiding him entirely. This reality that Job reminds us here in chapter 3 also provides us with, a good, with good counsel as we attempt to help other Christians who are experiencing pain and sadness. We should encourage our brothers and sisters to seek God in these times. Again, Simple. We don't have to, it doesn't have to be complicated. Encourage those that are in suffering to seek God in the times of suffering. We should draw their attention to the Psalms and encourage their use in prayer and meditation. We should remind our Christian friends that it is acceptable, appropriate, and even faithful to them to speak honestly to God why 
while suffering. The question why God is an appropriate question to ask. And if you, if you have a Christian friend who is enduring difficulties, never stop directing them to God in prayer. Don't quit. Tell them, don't quit. Don't quit. Keep driving them to God rather than allowing them to drift away from Him. Some, you, might have that, you might have to be that force that keeps on pushing them towards prayer, towards God. Okay, I'm going to pray. I pay attention to my prayer. Okay. And it can be five seconds of prayer and stop. Ten seconds... We tend to get numb in suffering. We tend to, our mind tends to not work as, as, as well in suffering. So don't pray for them from two hours straight aloud. But pray with them. Drive with them. Drive them to prayer. You might even say, repeat after me. You know, and, and help them pray that. So that's lesson number one. It is not unfaithful to speak honestly to God about suffering. Lesson number two is... We need to recognize the limitations of our knowledge in dealing with suffering. Job 3 illustrates the finiteness of human knowledge, particularly in the area of understanding the reasons for human suffering. We have to be careful not to go beyond the Bible when talking about suffering. It's going to be very difficult to to do a one-to-one association between cause and suffering. That's really the lesson of the book of Job. The lesson of the book of Job is not to explain the origin of suffering or of evil, but to say that bad things happen to good people, and that's okay. That's how it is. Don't assume that all, all suffering happens because something the person did something bad. It's, it's possible, and that can be explored, but that's not the only explanation. Fear and anxiety that are out of control stem from a desire for absolute control and knowledge. Often in suffering, we wanted that answer. It's okay to ask the question, why? But we also have to be okay with a no answer. And when we desire complete control, when we desire complete knowledge of what's going to happen, all the what-ifs answered, suffering is going to meet fear and anxiety on top of it. Because those, we're not going to have those, those answers. Now, when we forget that we are limited, we are all limited because we're creatures, we're finite, we make our experiences the lens through which we interpret suffering. We, we, just, we decide that we are the ultimate interpreter of everything that is around us. And yet we need to use more than just our experience as a lens through which we look at suffering. If we don't, we will come up with a false understanding of suffering and even of God. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Daniel Estes, in his commentary on the book of Job, says, in doing this, uh, in, in, in blaming God, in questioning God, in, in, in being angry with God, in, in going away from God, and so that's what in doing this is. In doing this, Job looks at God through the wrong end of the binoculars. Have you ever tried this? To look... Turn the binoculars. What happens when you look at the, through the wrong end of the binoculars? Everything looks far away and tiny, right? Tiny and really far away. By perceiving God through the lens of his expectation, his experiences, Job sees God as uncaring. If he would view his experience through the lens and character of God, he would see things in a far different way. In our lives, we are prone to diminish God when we let our feelings about what is happening in our lives to become the measure by which we evaluate God. 
we need to remember that whatever our circumstances, God's character is unchanging. Is God good in time of when everything's going well? Is God good when life stinks? Yeah. He doesn't change. His character is the same. He's still kind and compassionate and so on. You know why I think a lot of times we are, have a hard time with suffering in our lives? Even as solid, Bible-believing believers, even Reformed, is that we have bought into the idea that we are living our best life now. And we want this to be our best life. We forget that that's not the promise that God gives us. The promise is of a life to come that is free of suffering. Not this life. And when we suffer now, then we think, oh, God has failed us. We have never promised to give us a life without suffering. As a matter of fact, entire books of the Bible are written to help us go through suffering, including Job and 1 Peter. So, we, we must be careful that we don't allow ourselves to become practical atheists by neglecting to consider the finiteness of our knowledge and re- the reality that there is a heavenly and spiritual realm that we are not even aware of and that God is in control of all things. When we decide that we are the one that knows all about the suffering, we have all the answers, we have put ourselves in the place of God. We don't believe in the God of the Bible and therefore have become Atheist. Remember what Paul says about himself? When is it that he is strongest? When he's weak. And it is in his weakness. In, in this, remember 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 12 in the context of suffering? That, God, uh, that, that he had his suffering, that he prayed that God remove, and God said, nope. You're going to continue to suffer, whatever it is that you're suffering, so that you can stay humble. And, God, and, and Paul takes that from the hand of God and says, it is in my weakness that I am found strong. We're going to skip really quick to just mention the lesson number three. It's important that we see that there's a way out of suffering. Job, at the end of chapter three, does not believe there's a way out. So he thinks that the solution is to end his life. But there is a, a way out. You know, have you ever felt... Have you ever felt that way while in suffering, that there's no way out? Have you ever felt yourself in a position where you think that, that everything is closing? You feel like you're drowning in suffering, you're suffocating in suffering. And the fact that you are a believer does not magically make this aspect of human suffering disappear. Because we're really good at not being consistent in our beliefs. When a, a, a suffering person becomes convinced that there is no door in the prison cell of suffering, then all hope is lost and the risk of self-harm is great. But that's not what we believers need to do. There is a way out. There is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The first sermon, no, we, we tend to uh, think of the Sermon on the Mount as the first sermon that Jesus preached, just because it comes right up there in the book of, uh, of Matthew and so on. But it's likely the first public ser- uh, sermon he preached was actually in Luke chapter 4, in the synagogue in Capernaum. And I, I love this scene, because we have Jesus walks into the synagogue, has a bit of a fame, he's been a public teacher now for a year, he's entering his second year of ministry, he's a year of public 
glory, lots of, it's going to be having lots of followers. So he's from Capernaum, close to Nazareth, the homeboy, the, the home teacher. You know, they're excited about him. So rabbi, come in, teach. And they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And this is before chapters or verses, right? So they hand him this thick scroll of Isaiah. He opens it and finds the precise passage that he's looking for, which tells us that he knew the Bible. And he knew the Bible as a man, so he learned the Bible. And he opens to this exact passage in Isaiah. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to, the set, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's his text. He rolls the scroll of Isaiah, as it was tradition at the time. He sits the people stand to hear the sermon. And then you have this gloriously short sermon that he preaches. You see what the sermon is? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He let the Bible talk about itself. This is it. You've seen it fulfilled. What is it fulfilled? That the Lord has sent him to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, even the captives that are captive to suffering in this life. So if you're, if you're suffering, there's a way out, and that way is in Jesus Christ. If you're helping somebody who's suffering, there's a way out, and that way out is in Jesus Christ. Any questions or comments before we close? Yes, Linda. It is wrong to be angry at God. It's never right to be angry at God. Always 100%, 1,000% sinful to be angry at God because sinful, uh, righteous anger is only at sin. God doesn't sin. So you, can't, you cannot be righteously angry at God. Now, you've heard, I've heard Christian counselors say, oh, yeah, go ahead, express your anger to God. He's a big boy. He can take it. No, you're sinning if you're angry at God. There's no ifs or buts about it. You can express your frustrations. You can ask God to forgive you for your anger at Him. But being angry at God is always, always, always sinful. And to blame God, no, to, to recognize that God is the author of all things is one thing, but to blame God, blame always implies anger. And Job does blame God throughout the book, and he gets more and more self-righteous as the book goes on. Uh, to the point he says, if there was an umpire here, there was a judge here, and I presented my case to him, he would side with me, not with God. And, and that is obviously not right. So no, it's not right to be angry with God. Anything else? All right, so, yes, Hannah. Be annoying. Be present. I know you don't want me here, but unless you call the police, I'm not leaving. And I, 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 and I mean that literally. <laughs> you know, um, if they start beating you up, you can leave. But uh, you know, but seriously, force yourself into into them, uh, into their presence. Yeah. Um, anything else? All right. That spray. Father, thank you that we can suffer in Christ. We thank you that we have Him with us. We pray, Father, if there's any here who are suffering and feeling that they are trapped in suffering, 
that you open their, their eyes to see the crucified Christ, to suffer for them, and that they might find a way out in him. We pray, dismiss us with your blessings tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.